Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. And hello, I'm Steve McDonough. On each episode of But I Digest, we feature a specific food or ingredient, wedging out its history, removing the hardcore to expose its heroes, and celebrating all of its gloriously crunchy hoopla. And our topic this week is iceberg lettuce. Yes, you got the word wedge in there. That was nice. I, yeah, I, I was thinking wedgie, but no, that's a different... Uh, <laughs> wedge issue? This, yeah, whole, this, whole one, this whole episode is a wedge issue. It is a wedge issue. Yeah, hopefully it won't drive a wedge between our friendship here. Um, but um, so I, you know, iceberg is one of those things that I usually keep at arm's length unless I'm just needing uh, a bit of crunch. And so when this topic was recommended, my, uh, my first thought was like, why? But like a lot of these topics, once you kind of start, you know, looking into it, it's a lot of stuff, a lot of layers, if you will, uh, going on. So, are with you? This. You're saying you're not a fan. You're one of those anti-iceberg lettuce. Well, look, people. I'm not. I'm not anti. I guess it's mainly because there's so many other great options. Uh, I have a nostalgia thing with iceberg, which I think a lot of people do too. I love the crunch. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, since my my focus has kind of gone to healthy, I just try to. I'm always looking for that healthier thing. So I'm not. Well, that's anti. true. You need more. You need yeah. more nutrients it's, in it's, anything um, you eat. Don't that's you? exactly right. So it's a little devoid of nutrition. But again, I'm not anti. I'd rather you eat that than a pop tart. You know, on a, on a oh. given day. Did you uh, know? Um, I love this quote. You know, John Waters, who yeah. wrote, uh, yeah, okay, we all know who John Waters is from Hairspray. And it's time for. Oh, oh, right. No, Wait. it's not. It's Whoa. not really. Whoa. My head is spinning. <laughs> he, he, he had a great quote. He called um, Iceberg uh, the polyester of lettuce. Oh, that, you know, I, I saw that quote, but it wasn't quoted to him on the, on the article that I read. So I'm, that makes perfect sense. That I, I double checked a couple of times looking around, and it that seems that it, he was, in fact, the one who called it the polyester well, of lettuce. Well, I think it is exactly the polyester of lettuce, which, you know, polyester has its uh, has its place. So uh, Polyester is the name of another one of his movies, and it's time wait, for... Wait, 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 already? No, it's not. No, it's okay, not. good, good, good. Um, Although, you know, it would be good if somebody did a story about uh, a bunch of adopted sisters who were all named Esther, because then you'd have many Esthers, it would be the polyesters. Yeah, um, that, uh, Natalie, can you just go ahead and cut that out now? Can we just not... <laughs> No, I know it's bad. Not have There's that. a reason that I don't do these. Uh, so let's talk about uh, iceberg lettuce before we get too far off the rails. Um, so, you know, it is a lettuce right now. I kind of mistakenly thought that that lettuce was a brassica because I, again, being a plant nerd, I'm always talking about, you know, these uh, these families of plants and brassicas are cabbages. And we did this uh, this great episode on cabbage not too long ago. Well, and you say it was great. I have well, got listeners that beg to differ. I learned a lot about it. I learned um, about my, you know, a lot of things about the cabbage, but um, no, I, did, I did like the cabbage episode. Anyway. Yeah. anyway, sorry, go ahead. So it's not related to um, to cabbage, even though it looks like it would be its uh, its first cousin. Um, the Latin name for lettuce is Lactuca sativa, and the variety is called Capitata and Capitata really just means head. So it's a, it's a heading form of a plant. And so instead of being like an open rosette, it forms this sort of closed head, much like cabbage does. And it's in the Asteraceae family, and we also did an episode on another Asteraceae, which is the artichoke, but it's a huge family of plants. It includes things like even the sunflowers are in the Asteraceae family. And uh, But again, not at all related to the cabbage, totally uh, just kind of a, a, an imposter lookalike. And lettuce as a plant has been with humans basically as long as we've been around, as long as we've been keeping history for sure. And like many of the plants that we eat and we cultivate, it started as a weed. Uh, and, you know, I, I would like to have been around when the early humans were just randomly eating weeds and thought this weed tastes better than that weed and slowly started selectively cultivating them 
uh, to kind of grow it into what it is today. This this really large and, uh, you know, for the amount of one little seed creates quite a bit of, of nutrition there. Mm. So it's been with us for a long time, and it's believed to have originated in the Mediterranean, where a lot of plants seem to have come from, very fertile area there. Um, and that's where we have our first documentation going all the way back to about 6,000 years ago. Um, and we know it was grown as an agricultural crop in Egypt and in, you know, all around the Mediterranean. Uh, but we believe it could have been way earlier than that in the Middle East, uh, in, in Iran, like Persian Empire. We know that they grew lettuce. Um, Hippocrates, which everybody knows is the, the father of medicine, he praised uh, lettuce for all of its benefits. Uh, and again, I'm not specifically talking about iceberg here, just in general, the family of lettuces. Um, and even uh, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, he valued lettuce so much that he had a statue of lettuce made. Now, wait, what? Yeah. Absolutely. There was a, a, a statue of lettuce in, uh, in ancient Rome. Are you going to uh, talk more about that? Or are you going to leave us with no, that? No, I'm going to leave you that because that's a good segue into Caesar salad and romaine lettuce. And so that's another for another episode for another day. Uh, I will only mention that Caesar in Rome has nothing to do with Caesar salad, as you know. And again, we'll talk about that uh, uh, down the road. Oh, um, some reason. See, this is why you should subscribe. Yeah, this We're is going to give you this little this little romaine nugget and you're going to have to pick it up later. I'm planting a seed for later. I, oh, I see what you did there yeah, too. Uh, yeah. So uh, lettuce, uh, it's sort of grain, uh, gains, not grained, although you could say it gained popularity uh, throughout all of Europe and it even came to the Americas via Christopher Columbus. On his second journey, uh, he brought lettuce seeds to the new world. Uh, but today, again, we have to get our, our focus razor sharp on iceberg lettuce because that is our topic and we will uh, digress all over the place if we don't. Um, so iceberg, as we know it, was introduced by the W. Alti Burpee Company uh, in 1894, and it was originally labeled as crisp head lettuce. Yeah. And it was a variation of their very popular French variety of lettuce that was called Batavia. Now, the Burpee Company was and really still is a main developer and supplier of these farm and garden seeds. And I'm one of those guys every year. I look forward to that big glossy catalog of, of Burpee seed. Uh, I mean, it's they all still the, do them. Oh, they absolutely. still send out catalogs. Oh, listen. Huh. Yeah, I, um, I get tons of those, you know, from all sorts of companies. And um, they really get you because they, they send them out in the winter months when you're thinking about gardening. And so you order all of these seeds that there's no way in hell you would have the time or the manpower to plant them all. Uh, so I still have seed packets from three seasons ago that I ambitiously ordered, you know, with good intention. Uh, but lucky for uh, for me and a lot of folks, a lot of those seeds last for years if you keep them, you know, keep them tight. So, um, so yeah, they still send them out. And um, this was, again, one of their very popular lettuces. Uh, but lettuce is a very perishable thing, right? So basically, people, if you wanted lettuce, you would either grow it yourself or you would buy it locally. And uh, but that one seemed to be a um, little more resilient. This crisp head seemed to be a little more structurally intact. It, it didn't wilt quite so easily and uh, it would hold if it was kept under ice. And now when we think about it, I mean, it seems like sort of a, you know, of course it holds under ice. It's, you know, that's how you keep things cold, right? Refrigeration. Refrigeration. But going back, you know, turn of the 20th century, going right into the 1900s, that was a pretty revolutionary idea, right? The idea of like being able to move a very perishable piece of produce like lettuce across the country. And so this, that idea, which again, seems like a, a no-brainer, um, is credited to a man named Bruce Church. 
1926, Church uh, kind of took a big gamble, uh, and he and some investor friends uh, invested $3,000 to buy an entire field of this crisp head lettuce, and they packed it in ice, and they shipped it from Salinas, California, all the way to the East Coast. Now, with that $3,000, they ended up returning over $100,000, which is an absolute fortune in those days. Yeah. Because 99% of the produce that they shipped was perfectly intact, um, which again, it just seems like one of those, it doesn't seem like an aha moment. It seems like a, you know, of course it did. Right. Uh, but that was, that was revolutionary. I mean, absolutely a, a big deal. Um, and the sort of rumor or the, the legend around iceberg is, uh, so this train, this ice train became known as the Fresh Express. And so as it made its way across country, um, the, the children that w- would await to see the train coming into the, to the markets and uh, children, particularly in Maine, were overheard greeting the arrival of this ice train uh, by shouting, the icebergs are coming, the icebergs are coming. Because when they would open up the sliding doors of the rail cart, yeah. what do you see, right? This big, giant chunk of an iceberg. That must you know, have been with- cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! I'm, no, come on! Not, not that's too low for me. I'm not going for that. It must have been cool for the kids to see these little, little turn of the century yes. urchins. And they had their hoop and stick. That's what you're imagining, yes. right? Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, they had their hoop and stick, and they were running to the tracks and saying, "The icebergs are coming." Uh, now, listen. So, when I was reading this history, I thought, "Why does that sound?" so familiar right this story of of ice and and i mean obviously it's history but i thought no there's something more to that and then it hit me i have a pop culture movie reference you do not i do i mean me i mean that's that's how uh i mean uh, you know star wars that's a that's a t- that's a separate uh, thing this has nothing they didn't to do, do with they didn't wars. have the iceberg lettuce in star wars no 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 this is not the lettuce you're looking for um uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh but hey so i know you have to know this thing but i have to do a little a little side here because let's go let's go there was a movie where this was a big plot point where there was iceberg lettuce and a train and ice and so i uh, very quickly, I had this flashback. So we, if you were to have seen me in the 1980s in high school, I was a James Dean wannabe. And I was a James Dean wannabe only because uh, of the Smiths, and particularly the Smiths' uh, controversial now lead singer, Morrissey, who was obsessed with James Dean. And so, you know, this is pre-internet, pre-anything, and I, um, by watching the video for the song Suedehead, where he's, it's sort of an homage to James Dean's life, I, long story short, I got into James Dean. I started watching the movies, Rebel Without a Cause. I started watching a Giant and then East of Eden. East and of Eden. East of Eden was such a, I'm getting chill bumps thinking about it. It was the first time as, you know, 15, 16 year old kid that I watched a movie and it moved me. I mean, it was so, I was so engaged. And again, not like a popcorn watching, uh, you know, Total Recall, that kind of thing. I mean, I was so invested in the story and the plot, but particularly in James Dean and the way he brought that character to life. And then later to realize that a lot of that was improvised. You know, a lot of his scenes, I didn't know that acting could have that kind of a grasp on the soul uh, until that movie. Oh, that's Um, awesome. It was really good. I mean, like yeah. I said, I, and to this day, I still kind of rock in the, uh, the James Dean uh, hairstyle <laughs> whenever yeah. possible. But the, the, how that ties into lettuce is the, the patriarch in that story was a guy named Adam Trask. And um, Adam Trask was loosely based on Bruce Church, who we just mentioned about, that he had this idea of shipping um, lettuce across the country. But in East of Eden, it didn't go so well. So he uh, invested his, his family's fortune uh, into trying to, to move the lettuce from from west to east 
And it, it with a whole bunch of delays happened on the way, and essentially six train cars full of once crunchy, crunchy lettuce arrived uh, in New York as uh, basically a load of horrible slop. Um, but that whole drama sets up this iconic James Dean scene where he's you know grabbing his father and he's crying, and it really was one of those moments. So if you haven't seen East of Eden, um, go see it. Or no, don't go see That's it. That's so cool. Look at you with your pop culture. <laughs> We're talking about a movie. You could have done a little stump the straight guy moment. I could, yeah, I could have, but I couldn't have stumped you because I know you've seen this movie. You had no, to. No, I mean it's not like yeah, they yeah. made a Broadway musical out of out of uh, East of Eden or anything. Or did they? Uh, it's time <laughs> for stump. Oh, did I Thank set that you up? So much for what? Yes, you oh did. You walked right into this. You opened the refrigerating <laughs> car door. <laughs> the ice fell me. out. The icebergs are coming. Did you know that East of Eden was made into a Broadway musical in 1968? Well, hey, listen. Can I be honest? I didn't even know it was a book by John, uh, by John Steinbeck until after I saw the movie. So that's how ignorant I am. But no, okay. I did not. So. Um, okay, well, you wouldn't know that it was made into a Broadway musical because it only ran for one night. It opened yeah. on Broadway in 1968 and it closed that night. It was called Here's Where I Belong. Wow. Um, and the role of Lee, which was, you know, you were talking about the Trasks. Right. The, uh, their, their Chinese cook, the role of Lee, was um, they gave that role to James Coco, an overweight little uh, white guy. Oh. To, of this, uh, he was playing this role in yellow face makeup. Oh no! And uh, the Asian American Actors of America picketed the play. The it was it went so badly. Uh, the lyrics were by Alfred Urey and music by Robert Waldman. Um, they wrote. Have you ever heard of the Robber Bridegroom? No. It's a it's a really terrific one. They wrote that as well. But anyway, uh, they wrote the music to it. The book was written by Terence McNally, and Terence McNally is one of the greatest contemporary playwrights still around today. He wrote Love, Valor, Compassion, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Ritz. He asked that his name be removed from the credits before it opened. Wow. Yeah. But he also wrote the book for this popular musical from uh, 2000 started off as a British film about six unemployed steel workers. Then it was made into an American musical. These unemployed steel workers do up by a strip act at a local club after they saw their wives go crazy for a touring company of Chippendales. And this Terrence McNally Broadway musical from 2000 is. Could I mean, could that be the full Monty? Was that. <sighs> Congratulations! Whoa. Ding, 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 ding. You're right. Terrence McMahon did. Oh, excuse me, Terrence. Terrence McMahon. He was <laughs> Rum Tum Tugger in Cats. That's a completely different one. Terrence McNally. Terrence McNally wrote the full Monty, and you got it correct. So last week's Stump the Straight Guy, you got wrong. And as you know, we are always telling people to go to our Facebook page and tell us what it is. They can't do it this week because you got it correctly. But you had gotten the past three wrong in a row. Yep. And last week's was what film did Jessica Tandy and her husband Hume Cronin do? What octogenarian film did they play in together? And you said, do you remember? I said uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy, which is incorrect. And I was thrilled that you got it wrong, <laughs> even though I didn't get to say, might as well walk to the Piggly Wiggly, which is my favorite line, which I mentioned, but I just want to say it again because I love it so much. <laughs> anyway, the answer I was going for was Cocoon. And then on our Facebook page, Stephen and Beverly and uh, Lisa Pamela? and Pamela and Donna, yeah. they were giving us all of these films yeah. that they did together. They had also done The World According to Garp, uh, Cocoon and Cocoon 2, Batteries Not Included, um, uh, the green years, 
Foxfire. They had done a bunch together, but I was going for Cocoon. So I learned a little something last week too. Well, listen, um, I, I also, that may, I think not only is it amazing that they knew all of those answers, it makes me feel even more incompetent that there were multiple things I could have guessed and gotten a, a closer chance. It's not just like one random thing. There was a whole family of movies I could have. Yeah, you were wrong on just so many yeah. levels. Yeah, exponentially wrong. All right. So anyway, that's that's East of Eden. You you had a great answer today. Uh, congratulations on your pop knowledge. But let's talk about lettuce. <laughs> so let's get this train back on its tracks uh, and talk more about uh, iceberg lettuce. So yes, James Dean, big uh, big moment in my life. Uh, and the fact that we've already talked about James Dean and lettuce is uh, good enough for me. So now the um, this whole idea of an iceberg rail car changes when uh, refrigerated rail cars come around, really. So, uh, but for there was a long portion of the 20th century where iceberg was really our only option. So when you said right, the word right. lettuce, yeah, I mean, what did people think of? They thought of this round globe of lettuce. Yeah. That was lettuce. Even me growing up, I mean, we ate iceberg lettuce. Romaine was exotic. Yep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And things like frise or, you know, any of those things was like, wow, because no. when you did see them in the market, I mean, uh, if it was good looking, it lasted that way for a day or two. And then it was, you know, kind of sad. So um, yeah, that's the story of my life. Thanks. For that. <laughs> well, that's when the little the little mister comes sprays and it, and it just perks you up. So um, at its peak during like the height of iceberg consumption, Americans were eating on average 30 pounds of iceberg lettuce every year. And it sounds like a lot, like it, it obviously 30 pounds is 30 pounds, but the amount of volume that is, because it's, yeah. it's really just crunchy water. I mean, if you think about it, yeah. it's, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of fiber, uh, which is not a bad thing. So, um, you know, as, as the technology in refrigeration kind of improved, so did our, our selection. So iceberg as an popularity kind of went down, especially during the seventies and eighties with all of the health craze started coming in. So the focus became more on uh, these different textures, different presentation, different colors, but also on the health. And so iceberg kind of lost its, uh, its throne as being the, the king of lettuces, but it's really kind of starting to make its uh, comeback mainly out of nostalgia because people love the idea of that crunch and on a BLT and we'll get to all of those things. So I mentioned nutrition, which I always am uh, in keen to do. Uh, so it only has about one twentieth iceberg has one twentieth the amount of vitamins as any of its darker leafier kind of oh cousins gosh. there. Um, so as you mentioned, it's described as the polyester of lettuce, and it's the dark outer leaves of the iceberg lettuce that really contain all of the phytonutrients like potassium, iron, calcium, fiber, vitamins A, C, and K. But typically with iceberg, that's the stuff that gets discarded, or you know we kind of. That, that's the part that they remove before they cellophane wrap it and send it to us. So chlorophyll in particular, like the, what makes greens green, is missing in that inner white crunchy part. And chlorophyll is uh, honestly kind of like the sunscreen of the plant. So it protects from sun damage, but also when we eat it, it helps us protect from antioxidants. So uh, in general, with any plant, the darker the plant, the higher the antioxidants. So that's why um, iceberg as a plant might be somewhat nutritious, but we're only eating the, the crunchy sort of skeleton of the plant. Hmm. Um, now, so that lack of chlorophyll in that inner part also means that that part bruises easier than most lettuces. So oftentimes you'll see an iceberg, it gets what they call lettuce rust, which is a sort of yeah. orange spots, you know? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Like you can still eat that. It just, it's getting ugly because again, it's it's damaged from exposure to bacteria or uh, or from even from oxygen or from too much uh, extreme temperatures. So um, that's kind of why it's a little more finicky. What I thought was interesting is to protect that really pale crunchiness, 
when they are harvesting the iceberg lettuce in the field, it goes straight into these cartons that are immediately deprived of oxygen, like it goes into this oxygen vacuum. And it's vacuum cooled in these specially designed cold carts that removes the heat from the field. So as soon as they're picked, they are basically um, made anaerobic and they're chilled. And so from the point that they're in the field to the point that you unwrap that cellophane, they're kept cold to keep that nice white crunchiness. So a lot of work goes into uh, keeping it, um, you know, crispy and crunchy and, and pale. Yeah. Um, so now one last trick before I uh, bypass the head of lettuce over to you is, I know you've done this, but when I was a kid, we, we prepped a ton of lettuce for salads. Uh, you ever done the thing where you smack the iceberg on the table? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. for those of you who are not initiated, when you get a head of iceberg, you take the, the stem, face it towards the, the counter or the cutting board, and with a very gratifying thunk, you smack the entire head down onto the table, which shoves the core back up into the, uh, the head of lettuce for a second, and then you can just twist the whole thing out perfectly. Uh, so I would always volunteer when I was a young, you know, 8, 9, 10, all the way through teenage years. If uh, we got a case of lettuce, I wanted to be the one that was going to smack all the heads smacker. of lettuce. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to put that on my business card. I'm a chief lettuce <laughs> smacker. Um, but anyway, well, it's a very gratifying trick to do. I'm not a hater of iceberg lettuce. I think that I'm going to talk today about two ways to eat it and two ways to not eat it. Okay. So I think the two best ways to eat it, number one is a wedge salad. You know, just that great oh, yeah. you know, quarter cut of lettuce of iceberg with the stuff on it. So the Chicago... Uh, for goodness sake, the <laughs> Chicago Tribune, which some people do call the Chicagoon, just for, you know, just save time. It's a thing we do here. So the Chicago Tribune called it America's Silliest Salad, which is a great title. Uh, this journalist, Nick Kindlesperger, he wrote, the wedge is a silly salad. It's built upon the back of the least flavorful and least nutrient dense lettuce available and blanketed in some of the fattiest ingredients around. This makes it simultaneously the least nutritious and most unhealthy salad on most menus at Gracie's. But I love it. <laughs> and that is why I am quoting you and calling you out by name, Nick Kindlesberger, because I agree. I Love it for all of those reasons. It's a nutritionist nightmare. Nightmare. You can end up with like Big Mac quality calories, <laughs> but you need to prepare it and cut it properly because you know once you have it in front of you, and we serve it at the restaurant. Uh, excuse me, at the catering business, we do it as a throwback option for wedding menus because that presentation is really exciting. Oh, yeah. When you bring out that chunk of lettuce and it's like bathed in cream and cheese and a big slice of bacon and that dressing kind of seeps between the layers and traps the little bit of blue cheese chunks. I mean, it's, it always makes people smile, but you have to eat it properly. So you have to cut it from the outside where it's a little dry. And then you can take the dry little corners and kind of dredge them through the river of blue cheese. Because if you go right into the middle, you're going to, you're going to just get to the uh, undressed part too quickly and your ratio is going to be off. Wow, you uh, you made me crave a, uh, a wedge salad now. I haven't uh, had lunch yet. That sounds really good. They, they're they so satisfying. The other is a BLT. Now, I think it demands iceberg. We've been in a food era for a long time where we're taking, you know, old foods, vintage foods, classic foods, and we're tweaking them with updated recipes and ingredients and tearing them apart and deconstructing them. And God knows that is like how me and the Hardy Boys pay our mortgage. We do that. We are totally guilty of that. <laughs> But when I see a BLT that has like arugula 
or, you know, don't come at me with your alfalfa sprouts. Oy, for God's sake. <laughs> I, 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 my back just goes up. So the BLT needs it for the crunch and it gives it a bit of height. It gives you something to actually hold on to so that the sandwich isn't too skinny. Now, is the BLT the best sandwich in the world? I think it's in the running. The way the lettuce and the tomato kind of shoots through the saltiness of the bacon. And, and it also depends on the quality of a really superior mayonnaise. So it also needs to be properly prepared because mayo needs to go on both sides of the lightly toasted bread. It cannot be overly toasted. Otherwise, the sharp bacon and the sharp uh, toast can lead to physical injury. <laughs> so you put the bacon on one side, you put the iceberg lettuce on the other, and you put the tomato in the middle so the tomato doesn't touch the bread and make it mushy. And then if you bite into this sandwich and you do not end up with mayonnaise like stuck on your bottom lip there, you've done something wrong and you must throw it away and start again. Amen. So as I was studying the history of the BLT and spoiler alert, there is none. There's no great history of the BLT. It started out basically as a club sandwich with turkey, and then it lost the turkey in that really annoying third piece of toast, which you can take with your alfalfa sprouts and just leave. <laughs> um, so I came across this quote from, quote from a woman named Florence Cowles, who had possibly the best title for a cookbook ever, which was 700 sandwiches. Ooh. You know, it would, be, uh, it, would, it would be a comedy if there were only like 33 recipes in there. Then it would be like a, a, a comedy. Well, wait, uh, hold on, because you're, you're jumping ahead. So she says, who invented and christened the club sandwich? And how, why, when, and where? No authoritative answers to these questions are available. Anyway, who cares and what difference does it make? The club sandwich <laughs> is here to stay. Okay, nice. Florence. Nice. All right, I, got, yep. I see you, Florence. I'm listening. So she's writing a book and she's like, let's look into the history. Ah, screw yeah, it. Who cares? That's what she It's <laughs> in her book. I, I mean, are you here to read information? I don't have time for that crap, people. I'm making 700 sandwiches right. here. We got get on sandwiches board to me. Or get out of here. So let's, let's, let's just go on and talk about Florence A. Cowles. This is where this was my rabbit hole this week. And her hundreds and hundreds of sandwiches with countless variations of sardines and chow chow and names like DeFigco sandwich. She gave her sandwiches crazy names. So her book, 500 Sandwiches, first appeared in 1928. Then the second edition came out, which was 700 Sandwiches. Wow. But some of the editions, as you said, Hans, only had the text for the first 500. Oh, okay. It was an irony. So you got to be careful which one you get. Um, so that was really popular. So she came out with another book that was called 1001 Sandwiches, Florence well, A. That's Cowles. Am that's ambitious. Right, because she somehow found, managed to find another 301 additional sandwiches. I, wow. I, I just adore her. So in fairness, um, she does find an entire chapter to devote to peanut butter sandwiches. She's got wow. over 48 different types of peanut butter sandwiches. Now, are these just variations in theme, obviously? So it's not like, uh, I don't know. I'm curious how you can come up with 48 different. I guess I need to, don't spoil it for me. I have to read the book. I know. You do. I Make know. sure you get the right one. The one yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll count them in the, in the shop. And I think that she's kind of like the Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart, because she would make a flag sandwich. Oh, nope, that's not true. She had more than one flag sandwich, flag sandwich one and flag sandwich two. Wow. And she would lay out 
make the flags, uh, little stripes of egg white, stripes of red pimento, and then chopped olives for the blue field, and little bits of egg white for the stars. Uh, sandwich butters, she thought, were exceptionally dainty for afternoon tea, and she made homemade spreads. She did this um, spin on deviled ham where she took leftover corned beef and mixed it with chow chow or piccalilli. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. I, yeah. I thought that was kind of cool. So she had these crazy names, right? where she would just mash the ingredients together like, like an acronym, like a, a watercress and sardine sandwich was the Cressardine. Cressardine, I like that. The horseradish and sardine sandwich was the horse sardine. Mm. What do you think was in the sardine egg salad? Uh, look, I, you lost me. No, of course, it's uh, sardines and egg. Right? Well, yep. how about then she got crazy with the defigco that I talked about before. Defigco had the dates fig figs uh, co coconut and then some nuts and chocolate and sugar and butter wow. she didn't call it the fig co which would have been awesome oh, it would have been awesome so um do you want to do a little quiz now that you know how she works yep what was in her jindanutra sandwich what was in florence cowell's jindanutra sandwich ginger dates nutella and I don't know. He lost me. I don't know. So close. Ginger, dates, nuts, and raisins. Raisins. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm not done because there's not a lot of information out on her, which of course makes me like search even harder because oh, yeah. I live for this shit. You know, I do. And I'm in searching, I find one other idiot like me who's <laughs> like, who is this woman? And he's he's trying to give us all this information and he's not being able to find much, but he finds more than anybody because he's an academic librarian and a teacher and his name is James Rosensweet. And he has a blog called 700 Sandwiches, A Journey Through Time, where he is Julie and Julia-ing Florence oh, Coles. Got it, got it. I, right, I'm like, yes, James, yep. you and I would have a very boring lunch together. So at the very least, I have to tell you what he found to be the most successful of Florence's sandwiches. Don't you want to know what that was? Of course, out of out of the 1001. And one, right? So as luck would have it, uh, his latest blog post was, what, what did I decide was the most successful? But he hasn't been updating in a while, and he apologizes. He says he's been busy with work and has, quote, had fewer opportunities to eat a truly unsettling sandwich at, life, at lunchtime. Well, hopefully his story doesn't end with like a Mama Cass kind of a thing. That would be horrible. Uh, maybe that's why he stopped posting. We, we should get him on. We should get him on the podcast just to uh, just to make sure he's okay. <laughs> right, unsettling sandwiches and all. So his highest ranked sandwich is people. People, just be aware. I'm about to say something disturbing. Just uh -oh. hold on to your wheels and focus on the road. His most popular sandwich was peanut butter and tomato. Ooh. Now, he said most of us have heard of peanut butter with celery. All right, fair enough. Yep. He says, as a kid, he grew up with peanut butter and iceberg lettuce sandwiches. See how I brought yeah. this shit around for you people? <laughs> See how it all makes sense? I bring it around. I'll bring it back. So the peanut butter sandwich has tomatoes that are marinated in French dressing. Okay. Except That's Florence weird. didn't give this. Florence didn't give the recipe for French dressing, so he went and did a bunch of research on what kind of French dressings were around in the 1920s, and he found a standard one, which would have been a vinaigrette with uh, paprika and chili powder and sugar, ketchup, mustard, onion. So he puts the peanut butter on one side of the bread and tomatoes dripping with this French dressing marinade on top of that, and he said, "This is ludicrous. It was unbelievably tasty." 
Wow. He said it was complex and sweet and tangy and salty. He said, relatively simple, incredibly weird, marvelously tasty, and fondly remembered. Can I can I have that on my uh, on my tombstone? Relatively simple, incredibly weird, marvelously tasty, and fondly remembered. That oh, that sums it up. I'm happy with that. If 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 you go before me, I'll put that in a I'll, I'll get a you. sharpie or at least some chalk, and I'll go <laughs> yeah. once a year and rewrite it. That sounds good. You know how people leave stones to oh, show yeah. they were there. I'll put write some, in chalk. You could put some dates and raisins and nuts, and people <laughs> can make their own sandwich. Go. All right, so that's how you eat it. Oh my gosh, am I talking a lot? All right, here we go. Now I want to talk quickly, if I can, about how not to eat it. The first way you don't eat iceberg lettuce is you don't freaking cook it. Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan. So iceberg lettuce was my first worst meal. When I was in high school, I was watching a PBS show and uh, one of the chefs was cooking iceberg lettuce. And I thought, well, I can, I can do that. I'm going, I'm going to try that. That sounds really interesting. So I went to the store and I got iceberg lettuce. Uh, I had my girlfriend over at the time, my, my mom, and I made the worst meal ever. <laughs> it was awful. It was wet and mushy and oh my God. God, it was it was just a mess. So in doing this, I was looking to see are other people doing this. I'm, I'm finding recipes for braised iceberg lettuce with peas and chicken broth in a Dutch oven. But Mark Bittman from the New York Times, yep. he has been cooking with it, and he kind of uses it. Uh, I've seen people like Mark Bittman kind of treat it like bok choy, right? Sesame oil, soy, rice wine vinegar, real quick saute to keep it crunchy. But I'm I'm not on board. No, you remember, oh, you might remember, I cooked a little romaine lettuce on the Next Food Network Star in one of the challenges. Uh, but that's, it's different. Like you said, it's kind of more bok choy, whereas icebergs just a, it kind of, it's just, yeah, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, it's gross. And the other way not to serve it is wet with water droplets. Ooh. Because when I think of lettuce, it makes me think of Leona Helmsley. <laughs> Like physically, it makes you think of her or? Do you remember who? I bet, oh, I bet I there's, do. there's probably some people who won't know who Leona Helmsley was. So to tell you, um, she was one of the defining billionaire supervillains in the money, money, money 1980s. She had a Manhattan empire worth billions of dollars. She owned the, with her husband, uh, Harry Helmsley. They owned the Empire State Building. They owned the Palace Hotel, which at the time was called the Helmsley Palace. So she cast herself in the role of queen of the palace. She was like this nitpicking monarch of the property, and she demanded ultimate luxury standard for all of her customers. So she was the face, like her, she was in all of the print ads. It was just Leona uh, saying things like, it's the only palace in the world where the queen stands guard, mm. her with a big cup of coffee. I insist on a large cup of coffee. Why shouldn't you? And... I won't settle for skimpy towels. Why should you? You know, she was standing up for you and with her, her uh, detail-oriented, stern, hotelier uh, platform. Well, her employees were enduring legendary cruelty that people hated oh, yeah. Leona Helmsley. I think your so, supervillain description kind of just sums it all up. Yes. So when her limo would be heading over to the palace, there was an alarm system that would go through warning all of the staff and they'd go into overdrive that mama's coming, mama's coming, make sure that everything is perfect. Otherwise she would berate them. She would humiliate them, fire them on the spot. So Leona Helmsley, if you don't know, she was titled the queen of meme. So there's countless firsthand accounts of her behavior, but 
The best is the infamous lettuce story. So here's a firsthand one from a guy named Milton Meckler. He was a VP who worked for the Helmsley subsidiary. Uh, he was at this infamous luncheon meeting where Leona ordered tuna sandwiches. She ordered a lot of tuna. She was eating, she was big into tuna for some reason. Um, the food is delivered. Everyone's about to eat. And this comes from Milton. He says, Leona reportedly shouted, wait a second, don't touch our food. Look at the lettuce. Don't you see there are water droplets on the lettuce? Meckler recalled, Mrs. Helmsley went around and picked up everybody's lettuce off their plates and approached the servants like a general inspecting her troops. Then armed with the clump of lettuce, she went into a convulsion type atmosphere shouting, how dare you do this? And she shook the lettuce like a wet sponge and sprayed each of them in the face. She went up and down the line and sprayed all of them and said, I should fire all of you right now. God. So here's how it ends. Disgruntled employees leak records to the New York Post showing that Leona and her husband um, were guilty of tax evasion. They fraudul fraudulently uh, spent over $3 million of the company funds to renovate their Connecticut mansion. So they're charged with income tax evasion. Harry is quite a bit older than her. He's deemed unfit for trial. She stands trial and it all comes out, including this most famous Leona Helmsley quote, when her housekeeper on the stand said that Leona told her, we don't pay taxes. Only the little people pay taxes. Wow. So she goes to prison for 18 months. But in classic... 80s billionaire supervillain move when she dies she excludes two of her grandchildren from her inheritance for quote reasons which are known to them whoa <laughs> and then as if that's not enough she leaves 12 million dollars in a trust for her dog wow and i think that's and what that's what some people remember about they they remember the part about the the rich uh, hotel lady that left money to her dog um i did not know the lettuce part of that story but that's uh, that is impressive i wonder yes. if the dog um but how the dog's doing is he still around do we know well that this was this was in uh, 2007 so one would assume well, that uh, the dog is not around another oh, i'm not i'm not doing math i'm not here for math no the dog died 17 years ago that's my but answer. very Final rich answer. very rich look at you look it up you do some of your own goddamn homework the only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook So all of this talk about the iceberg wedge lettuce has got me craving one. And of course, you could make it with a with a head of romaine, but it's not quite the same if you're going for that classic crunch. I, I do want to mention, because as we are timing the recording of this particular podcast, it's almost Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to uh, to you, my friend. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you so much. Uh, I know that's a big deal in, in your house, which is awesome. It is, yes. Yeah, you've got exponentially twice as more. Many, twice as many fathers. Twice as many fathers, exactly right. I've got more. I've got uh, three times the children as you do, but you've got twice. That's true. Fathers That's in your true. household. Oh yeah. Um, how that works out? Math. You said we're not doing math. No, we're um, not doing math. But so the wedge, um, they they tried to. They being sort of the geniuses behind uh, produce marketing uh, in 2007, which we just talked about, also happened to be the year that uh, our uh, hotel supervillain died. Uh, but the Salinas, California-based produce company that's called Tanimura and Antle, they're like actually one of the largest lettuce growers in, in the country. They wanted to make the wedge, the iceberg wedge lettuce, the official salad of Father's Day. 
And uh, you're probably kind of tilting your head and cocking one eyebrow and going, well, really? I never heard of that. Well, it's probably because no one else has either. Um, not that it was a bad idea, but uh, they were quoted as saying, well, Mother's Day has strawberries. Thanksgiving has celery. But historically, no holiday has been associated with the iceberg lettuce. So what better product to claim ownership of Father's Day than the cornerstone salad of a steakhouse experience? So uh, Thanksgiving has Celery is what the this is from a produce Who are marketing these company. People? Oh, you know. I'm not, I'm not, don't listen to these people. Well, Go anyway, <laughs> that's that was my tie in to Father's Day and iceberg lettuce, but you don't have to wait until Father's Day, uh, to make a nice iceberg wedge salad. But classically, the dressing is a, is a creamy blue cheese dressing. So I wanted to make a, a recipe that kind of maybe brought back some of that nutrition that was uh, missing from the iceberg and sneak it in via the, um, the, the blue cheese dressing. But we're going to do it with a Greek yogurt base. And I'm going to add some live active cultured buttermilk. So not the super low fat stuff. But if you get a full fat cultured buttermilk and a full fat Greek yogurt, you're going to have so many great good gut bacteria that you can offset sort of the nutritional wasteland that is the iceberg lettuce. I'll put the recipe up on um, on the website, but a little bit of Worcestershire, some nice uh, some nice vinegar. It'll be a nice tangy blue cheese uh, component that'll pair well with the uh, with the crunch of a wedge salad. All right. All right. I do love a good blue cheese dressing. And I told you how how vital it is to a chunk of, of iceberg. I'm on board with that. Oh, good. but speaking of on board, um, I'm trying to think of how to make a drink that has to do with iceberg lettuce. <laughs> so immediately I was like, oh, I can do iceberg on board the Titanic. Oh, nice. nice. Right? Very so good. it's a stretch, but I am taking it. So um, this is a cocktail. Uh, it's called a punch a la Romaine. It's Roman punch, not Romaine lettuce, which we could, this would also work for the Romaine lettuce one. So I might do it twice. Um, Roman punch. This has appeared, uh, this version of my cocktails appeared in two books, uh, The Last Night on the Titanic, uh, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining, and Style. Veronica Hinkey wrote that one. And The Titanic, The Truth About the Tragedy. This is one of the drinks that they had served on the Titanic on their, on their final night. So a Roman punch is essentially like a champagne sorbet or a boozy granita. It's kind of frothy and citrusy champagne punch. And it comes from that 1700s Sicilian habit of using snow and water to make these kind of sherbet-like punches that they would do. But what's really clever about the punch a la Romaine is that they add meringue into it or egg white uh. to elevate the texture. So there's a really classically complicated way of making this cocktail, which involves making an oleo saccharum, oleo saccharum, if you haven't heard of that, or saccharum, if you haven't heard of that, which is where you put um, citrus rinds into sugar and the sugar pulls out all of the oils, the essential oils in that, uh, and then top it with a scoop of meringue. But you know, I don't think that you're going to do that, to be honest. <laughs> so mine is just kind of a, a version to that that hopefully you can try. So you're taking an egg white, you are shaking the hell out of it until it's frothy. You're going to add rum and simple syrup and lemon juice and, and orange juice. And then you're going to take into a, a, a coupe glass, you know, one of those flatter champagne coupes, and you're going to mound. It has to be crushed ice. You're going to add crushed ice into the center of it, like an iceberg. You're going to pour the cocktail around it and then top that with champagne. And it becomes... Um, it becomes liquid and frothy enough to drink without spoons. And it's super fancy and it'll make you feel like you're on the Titanic with your iceberg 
lettuce. I don't know. <laughs> transitions, people. Transitions. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you. So, as always, if you want to find these recipes, you can because we get them out there for you. People, come on over to our website, ButIDigestPodcast.com and get these free recipes. Free, I tell you. If you want to email us, it's at ButIDigestPodcast at gmail.com. Facebook and Instagram, ButIDigestPodcast. Go to our Facebook page. We're always doing fun posts every day. Please uh, give us a like on there and, and I will I will reward you with uh, stupid nonsense. Twitter is ButIDigestPod. Also on our website, you'll find a link to Hans's Lines of Spices as well as a link to download my cocktail book, The New Old Bar. As always, special thanks to our web designer, Hewitt Rabel, to our editor, Natalie DeChico. Special music by Corey Goodrich, and our theme music is by Brian Reyes. Uh, hey, I heard a rumor on the last episode that you have a, uh, have a downloadable cocktail book. Is that true? I didn't notice. Did I mention that? I think I heard. I, I mean, I just uh, could be wrong, but I think yeah. you can download your uh, The New it's Old Bar. It's cheap. Why haven't you done it yet? Just pull the car over. Yeah, I think know. you should. I think you should. And if you're enjoying our show, could you just like give us a like, give us a follow? Follow, help us out. Uh, we are going to learn more this weekend because this week you and I are going to the podcast uh, uh, festival. What the hell do they I think call it? It's called Podfest. You know how like that lady made the sandwich names by like by smushing words together. It's a yes. podcast festival, and you smoosh it together, and it becomes Podfest. That's it. And we will go there, and we will we will be smushed and uh, learn learn how to do this better. We're, we're just so sorry for the nonsense we can. We're going to we're going to be betterer by the time we get back. Be better. We'll try. Are we done here? We're done. Looking forward to it. 